Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia. A global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Even as academics and alleged researchers, <clears throat> there's this way in which when we speak about racism, we want to separate racism from gender. And when we do that, we end up putting them back together, focusing almost exclusively on black female bodies. So we talk about intersectionality all the time. We need a race-gender analysis. But it seems that that race-gender analysis never places black men at the helm of victimization through things that we think are, are feminine, are, are female violences like rape, domestic violence, domestic homicide, any of these types of things, violence by intimates, you know. So when this happens, people just say, ah, well, isolated incident. Ah, well, not the basis of black male experience. But then when you go back through history and you start digging just a little bit deeper than what those introductory textbooks that you get in Black Studies or Africana Studies 101 or Women and Gender Studies 101 tell you, you say, wow, you have black men like Richard Wright, black men like Eldridge Cleaver, right, people like Hurden, all trying to tell you that the basis of black male fear, phobia, and brutality has a sexual and homoerotic basis. This is Fanon. Right, that every every Negrophobic white man, you know, thinks about performing, you know, thinks about receiving fellatio from the Negro. Right, so this this is well well on the minds of black men writing during periods of Jim Crow, racist repression in the South, and colonization. But it skips the bourgeois black academic because it doesn't fit with a kind of post civil rights notion of discrimination. Right, intersection. I was telling my class the other day, intersectionality only works if you assume that. The segregationist basis of racism has fallen away, and you get you can only get a discriminatory basis because you're talking about the ways in which identities play out in terms of recognition, and then how some people being recognized more than other people creates disparities, be it monetary, be it political, etc. But in a world where you're segregated because of your race, 
your identity only only tells you the kinds of violence that have the propensity to accumulate around you. So it may be the case that if you're a black woman in Jim Crow, you're raped more often because that's the type of violence that white males in the South like to perpetuate against black women. That doesn't mean that black men aren't raped in the South. It just means that that's not the peculiar type of violence or the particular type of violence that they most often experience, right? And because we don't look at racism in that way as the, as the articulation of various colonial and segregationist or Jim Crowish ideas, ideas, we can miss, completely miss the picture of this kind of brutality, despite the fact that this brutality happened over, all across the world within various colonies. So we have a kind of dishonesty and short remembering, right? Because you have to remember that when America is colonizing the world, we're at, we're at the turn of the 20th century, right? We're, we're only 60, 70 years out of that moment where people somehow became integrated, right? And we started ad- adapting in the 1970s or late 80s these ideas of intersectionality. So these are at best, you know, 20, 30 years old. So the question we would have to ask ourselves is how do theories that have just come about in the last 20 or 30 years do so much to reframe what we think is, is possible to bodies that we know have been existing, at least in the United States, in, in relationship to physical violence and sexual violence for at least the last two or three centuries? Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to read 300 years based on an innovation in the last 30. But nonetheless, that's what people do, and that's why they miss. That's why they erase. That's why they can't see this other component of racism, especially black male vulnerability. They just, you know, because under intersectionality, maleness has a privileged position. Now, post-intersectionality theories have certainly challenged that. You know, people like Matua, people like Darren Hutchinson, people like Angela Harris have certainly challenged that idea, right? Explain that black men uh, experience a kind of gendered racism and that police brutality is a great example of that kind of disproportionate um, disadvantage. Uh, and even, you know, Matua's piece I've talked about a few times, you know, where she's saying that once you really test for these alleged black male privileges, you can't really find them. At best, you'll talk about, you know, income disparities, but there's only a four to six percent or uh, six cent income disparity if you're, you know, not taking consideration incarceration as your employment. And that translates to about a little less than three thousand dollars a year. So if you're if you're going to base the disparities between genders on a notion of three thousand dollars a year, where that doesn't separate black men from black women in any substantial way because they live in the same neighborhood, same house, same danger, same violence, x x y and z, then I really don't know what we're studying. You know, at some point we have to hold theories up to empirics. We have to go through and actually test what's going on. And in a world where we don't do that, we're kind of losing the point. Context of white supremacy. Uh, for our guests, you can press star six one. That way I'll know I can pick out your line. I was looking for the name and it wasn't posting. Star six one. Uh, that was Dr. Tommy Curry. Uh, huge gratitude. This is what I mean by appreciation. When I say I don't like uh, roll calls where people just list a lot of names. Uh, of people that have influenced them, I would much rather, if you really appreciate uh, a scholar or any person and their work, their message, what they talk about as it relates to white supremacy, racism, apply their theories, concepts, work ethic, whatever it is, apply it. Dr. Curry, he says, hey, this report on Dr. Foster's work is spectacular you all should check this out he's been talking about it for a while what's the report the sexual abuse of black men under american slavery he's been talking about that report since 2011 he mentions it almost every time he comes on this program uh listeners have checked it out i myself that's how you appreciate keep following that author and look at the book that comes out that's following that same line same line of inquiry 
Rethinking Rufus, Sexual Violations of Enslaved Men. We talk a lot on this program about white supremacy and sexual uh, abuse within that system in a lot of aspects. One thing we have highlighted, courtesy of Dr. Curry, sexual abuse of black males during slavery and in general in the system of white supremacy. I would say that you should put this book, this program together with Vincent Woodard, The Delectable Negro, Human Consumption and Homoeroticism in U.S. Slave Culture in my top 10. We read it in the book club. And then Dr. Curry, The Man Not Race Class Genre and the dilemmas of black manhood read these three books together. And I think you'll have a very different understanding uh, of racism, white supremacy, and uh, the sexual abuse uh, of black males in a historic context. Real pleasure uh, for this evening's broadcast. The author of rethinking Rufus, uh, as well as that 2011 report that Dr. Curry quotes all the time. Uh, He is the Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs at the College of Arts and Sciences at Howard University. Our guest, Dr. Thomas A. Foster. There we go. Found him on the switchboard. Dr. Foster, you're with us? I am. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing some of your time with us this evening. Really excited to talk about your book. For listeners, I'm sure some folks, this is their first time hearing about your work. Uh, Anything that you would like to share with our audience just about who you are and the work you do? Uh, Let's see. I'm an historian by training, and my background is in early American gender and sexuality. Uh, Primarily, I've spent my career studying the history of sexuality, so I'm not a scholar of slavery um, per se. And so I think I came to the topic from a slightly different academic framework than uh, maybe other scholars would have. Outstanding. I looked at your photograph. All this time that Dr. Curry has been mentioning your work, I hadn't seen a picture of you. I saw your photograph and I said, oh, man, I'm not sure. Uh, are you classified as white or non-white? I identify as white. I'm white. Okay. Okay. I was not. Have, have you got that before where people are, are confused about your racial classification? Um, I had a student at DePaul ask me that once, um, I guess, when I gave a talk last spring. But otherwise, um, no. Hmm, okay. Much obliged. Uh, This program, I use the terms uh, racism and white supremacy as synonyms. I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that's an accurate definition? Um, Yeah, it sounds like a very accurate description, and I would say it still exists today, although, of course, by training, I tend to focus on uh, early America, so 17th, 18th century, 19th centuries now. Right on. See if we can cover uh, as much information as possible. Uh, The title of the book, uh, Rethinking Rufus, Sexual Violations of Enslaved Men. Uh, There is quite a bit of detail behind the first portion, Rethinking Rufus. Uh, Can you share some of that with our listeners? Uh, Certainly. So uh, Rufus uh, comes to us 
through one of the WPA interviews, the interviews that the government did um, during the Depression with the last generation who had been born into slavery um, and recorded their experiences, the very rich um, interviews. There's a lot of great information in those documents. They're available online. Uh, I think the Library of Congress houses the originals. Uh, the interview that I really was most drawn to is an interview with a woman named Rose. Uh, I don't have an interview from Rufus. Rose was forced to uh, couple with Rufus, and so that's how he enters this particular narrative. And I used her interview to try to tease out and understand what his experiences might have been. She talks about being um, forced to set up a household with him and clearly to reproduce with him. She resists him initially and then is um, both psychologically manipulated by her enslavers and also threatened with severe physical punishment if she doesn't capitulate. Um, there's really nothing in terms of reflections from Rufus in the project, and, and that was really one of the challenges um, itself, to, to use voices from people who were enslaved to try to get as close as I could to firsthand experiences. Um, but there's not a whole lot of individual um, explicit reflection that I think would leap out at most people until you really start looking through um, and identifying different types of abuses as um, sexual abuses. So I think one of the things also to think about is how we're thinking about sexual abuse. Um, I think people tend to think of a fairly narrow definition of rape um, when they approach the subject, and the book really uh, does what it can to reorient our framework uh, to think um, broadly about intimacies, um, the violations of, of intimate lives. Um, the rethinking for Rufus is uh, that we've been, I think, making assumptions about men like Rufus that they were not sexually violated, that their violations were more akin to just physical punishments. Um, so that's the rethinking of Rufus. I do talk a little bit, I think, in the introduction about the fact that the, the project came from classes in the history of sexuality with undergraduates. Um, they had certainly been thinking about Rufus um, and both thinking and not thinking. So not to get too hung up on clever wordplay, but the title um, does really come from this place. So I do want to explain it. Um, the thinking Rufus is that people, as I said, were making assumptions uh, in the absence of scholarship and academic discussion about sexual violations. People made assumptions that they just didn't happen. So there's a rethinking there. But honestly, the book could be called Thinking Rufus because there just hasn't been much academic work on this topic at all. And so in many ways, it's it's sort of a new topic. So it's newly thinking about it. Mm. I think uh, Dr. Curry, he mentions your work all the time. Uh, he gets at some of the reasons why we don't think about Rufus or why we should rethink Rufus black males in this topic of sexual sexual violation really important point that you get to very early uh, in the text uh, this is on page three uh, you write Bell uh, presumably drawing the conclusion from the absence of scholarship on the topic Bell Hooks asserted that the sexism of colonial white patriarchs spared black male slaves the humiliation of homosexual rape and other forms of sexual assault hooks did not consider the position of men in her examination of breeding i'll stop there but i think this is very common this assumption that oh no black males 
they didn't have to endure this. Of course, black females were raped. And that's also a topic that was uh, under researched, not thought about for a long time. That does get talked about at some level. But the often total disregard that that was not happening at all. Black males didn't have to address this. Can you speak to that? I can, although I still wrestle with um, why. So I know, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Curry and others um, have theories and speculate about why this project um, hasn't happened sooner. Um, Part of me thinks that uh, it's partly the legacy of slavery that set up black men as hypersexual, um, as sexual predators, Um, certainly not as um, individuals who could be victimized sexually. And so we are still partly, I think, living with those sexualized stereotypes of black men that I think for some may um, put blinders on them in terms of um, how they view particular interactions. I think we still see that today, even um, in popular culture, how um, popular culture views interactions, say, between um, underage uh, black boys and white women, for example. I think, though, that there's also only so many hours in the day and only so many scholars doing the history of slavery. And so in some ways, it's not entirely surprising to me uh, if you look at the progression of the development of gender and sexuality studies uh, that they you know, originally come from uh, an absence of study of women as just historical actors in any way. Um, and then you end up with um, the advent of the history of sexuality, which studies the importance of sex and sexuality in um, all aspects of social and individual life uh, and yokes that in particular to the women's history that existed and to women's studies. And so there's a way in which women's gendering um, naturally lends itself to the sexualization that occurred at the time. Um, I think um, it's only quite recently that we've started to look at men as gendered subjects, um, and certainly that is now beginning to play itself out in studies of slavery, where we are looking at men as gendered subjects under slavery. Um, And in general, I think there just hasn't been a whole lot of work on men and masculinity. Um, And so the field is quite new, and it's a little unclear to me what directions uh, it's going to go in, because it gets pulled in a few different directions, Um, certainly Dr. Curry, I think, has has, um, sort of positioned himself oppositionally, of course, to intersectionality um, and some feminist work. I think there may be other scholars who um, will accomplish also um, similarly productive um, avenues of discussion while, you know, yoking, I think, their work to feminist studies or more traditional, claiming sort of more traditional feminist roots, um, even with all of the racism in those fields. Context of white supremacy, our guest, Dr. Thomas, excuse me, Thomas A. Foster, uh, you talk about something I hadn't really thought about. Uh, it's not like you get to go shopping for clothes every day if you're on the plantation. And you talk a lot about how clothing and or the lack of clothing, that right there is a big part of sexual abuse. Just being in an environment where something that I take for granted just hadn't thought about that. You don't, if you're a slave, you don't have control over anything. You don't even get to decide if you get a shirt, if you get a pair of pants, that's not your decision. You might not, you might get a pair of pants and you might not. And you talk about how children a lot of time, and when I say children, we might be talking 10, might not have any clothes. You might not have any, any clothes at all. And you're just running around naked for the first, you know, three, four, five years of life. Can you talk about 
the important aspect of clothing uh, and how that linked itself to this sexual violation? Certainly. I, I think it's, um, it's worth noting that one thing we've lost sort of in our understanding of clothing for um, early Americans versus today is just how important clothing was um, for establishing status. So um, it's not only that enslaved people are denied um, autonomy in terms of their clothing or the ability to purchase clothing are dependent entirely on enslavers. Um, it's also that, that that clothing is given a meaning in that time and place that um, is extremely public and also um, very much about who you are. So um, individuals, in other words, um, free individuals, white or black, would identify themselves certainly in public by how they're, they're dressed. I mean, we've all seen sort of the um, clothing from the period. Um, and so I just want to underscore how important that is in terms of um, individuals and status. Uh, this wouldn't be lost on individuals, um, enslavers or enslaved people. And then, of course, as you mentioned um, when you started the question, there's just a lot of um, violation that comes with the kind of uh, meager clothing that many enslaved people uh, wore and were forced to wear, um, including the practice of many, um, certainly uh, boys, but even adolescent men and young men, depending on the plantation, um, or even grown men, often would wear only shirts um, with no underclothes. Um, so there is... I think built into that a certain vulnerability, and it does come up in some accounts um, where individuals either suggestively talk about that vulnerability um, or are instantly, almost instantly, um, rendered naked um, by simply removing a shirt. Um, it's, it's, um, I think, uh, quite complex, I would say, in terms of um, the issues, that there's a lot of meaning attached to it, but there's also sort of this um, ultimate uh, practical is the wrong word, but there's a reality, I guess, to being exposed all the time in that environment where you are enslaved. A number of anecdotes where because either these black people don't have any clothes on at all, or they will, if it's a, if let's say it's a black male, he'll have on a shirt, no undergarments or anything and a shirt that maybe goes down below the waist a little bit. So all you have to do is go pull the shirt up a little bit and bang, genitals are exposed. And you have anecdotes where this is white women talking about white women agency that they have as racists, as sexual exploiters, rapists, uh, where a white woman uh, is coming and just bam, flip up your flip up your uh, the front of your shirt and begins groping uh, a black male's genitals. Uh, can you just, again, kind of touch that and that specificity? Yes. Uh, so there's one um, case in particular in the book, a 17th century case um, with a, a white woman who is a servant class, if not a servant herself, and is hanging out with, I think, free and enslaved black men um, and does just what you described. Um, there's alcohol involved. It seems to be um, raucous, but that kind of action is extremely telling um, in that uh, it, I mean, it, to state the obvious, it's inappropriate in that setting. So it's not like that was okay um, in those parties. Um, it's especially striking that it's a white woman um, that does that in that um, there are certainly restrictions placed on white women's sexual expression. Um, so for me, that kind of situation very clearly underscores white supremacy, very clearly underscores her awareness of her position. Um, it 
clearly puts the lie to um, the idea that all black men are seen as threatening um, sexual predators. So that um, that is basically mobilized uh, early on. I mean, you do see that in the 17th and 18th century, that notion of black men, though it's only developing at the time, it really doesn't become um, much more solidified and in power until after slavery ends. And it's one of those sort of cultural mechanisms that um, is shoring up white supremacy. Um, but in this period, it still is somewhat in play. And so it's striking that it's sort of to the abuser's um, situation, whatever's advantage, you know, the advantage for them. So that's not going to be seen as her in a vulnerable position. Um, although I would say that even in the 17th century, she could have mobilized that had she wanted to um, as some kind of uh, defense somehow, you know, twisting some kind of twisted story, and I think received some sympathy. You, uh, oh man, I'll bring in uh, my quote from uh, Dr. Curry's book on the very page from The Man Knot where he mentions uh, your work. Uh, he mentions you a few times, but this is on the very page. He starts off, he says, in alerting us to our inability to speak to or think about the sexual coercion of black men making an enslaved man have sex, our tacit dismissal of the claim and its significance depends on the racist assumptions about predatory black men who desire to rape or the sexual insatiability of the black male who always craves sex. Ironically, the abhorrence of the idea that an enslaved black men wanted to be raped, made to penetrate a woman, would be immediately apparent to the reader if the subject in question was an enslaved black woman. Our moral sensibilities urge us not to be complicit in believing that the black female slave, like the black female of today, could enjoy her own rape. But for the black male, the idea that he could enjoy being forced to have sex with a woman at gunpoint crosses the reader's mind, if only for a moment. There is a foreignness in our sympathies toward enslaved black males. The man, not Dr. Curry. And I bring that in because that comes up and go right back to rethinking Rufus, their sympathy for Rose. She fights off, you know, Rufus's attack. She explains, she kicks him and gets him away. You're not going to sleep with me. You're not going to be in the bed with me this evening. And she talks about how she hated him. She didn't want to be with him at all. Master forced them to be together. I think for a lot of folks that I've talked with, there's a thought that, oh, yeah, he's not a victim. What Bell Hook said. And in mm -hmm. fact, he would enjoy raping Rose. It would not be, oh, wait a minute. Maybe he does. Maybe he thinks this is horrible. Maybe he doesn't want to do this at all. It seems almost foreign, as Dr. Corey writes, to, to think that way. What are your thoughts, Dr. Foster? Well, on that interview in particular, it's interesting that she doesn't she calls him a bully. So Rose calls Rufus a bully she doesn't um, say much beyond that. So she doesn't give us any hints that he chose her, desired her. Um, they were together sometime. And so she doesn't reflect on that period either. Um, so for me, in the absence of those things, I think that's even more evidence, in fact, that, that there was ambiguity there on his part, and, and I would argue um, coercion on his part. We don't know exactly what happened in that particular situation, but, I mean, their particular situation isn't obviously what 
um, drives me, and it's obviously not um, what's important in terms of gathering all the evidence together. So um, Dr. Curry has been a huge um, supporter of this project from um, the time that that article came out, um, and has been a huge supporter of the book as I was developing it and working on it. Um, so I, I always really appreciate his analysis um, and his um, conclusions that he draws. Um, I'm going to stop, I guess, before I go off on a tangent, but I, if you could repeat the question, I know there was one other thing that I wanted to add. Uh, just that, that foreignness and that idea of thinking, we would not think that a black female slave would enjoy being raped, but that notion that a black male, Rufus, that he would enjoy this uh, because I've, I've read that from other authors, mm. authors who write that I've heard that from people who've participated in the program where that seems to come mm-hmm. up that if you're a black male and you're the stud on the plantation that, Hey, this is mm-hmm. the life. Yeah, I think I, so that's partly what I mean when I say that um, one of the reasons that this hasn't really um, been produced yet in, uh, from the Academy, at least that this is the um, first monograph on the subject uh, is that we are still living in that legacy of slavery and, and post-slavery. And so that is, that is what I mean by that, um, in that it does, I think, cause some scholars to not recognize um, certain situations as abusive. Um, you mentioned um, a man being forced at gunpoint to penetrate a woman. So that's a late 18th century case of rape of a free black woman that a number of scholars had written about. Um, and there was virtually no comment on the experience of the man. Uh, two white men uh, forced an enslaved man at pistols um, to rape a free black woman and taught them both. And so I used that actually to start the article, the original article from a number of years ago. Um, and it was really shocked that, in fact, people hadn't asked that question, like anything about his experience. They had rightly talked about her experiences. They had rightly talked about the vulnerability of free black women in the late 18th century Maryland. Um, but the silence on his particular position um, is distressing um, and telling um, for all the reasons um, that we've been discussing context of white supremacy uh, we say often reading is more important than watching television in our book club we also read edward baptist the half has never been told lots of great information in that one and referenced in dr foster's book uh, i remember uh mr baptist talking about uh having kind of these uh, sl- sex slave pens uh, and light-skinned black females, really high price, high demand. Uh, we want to go and rape these ladies in particular. You, uh, in the text, you talk about the same sort of thing as it relates to uh, light-skinned enslaved males uh, being sought after. Can you touch on that? Sure. Um, so the what I found is not nearly as elaborate as what... Um, was found for light-skinned um, women. There, there seems to be quite a um, well-established um, and known um, sex trade there in light-skinned women, um, especially in uh, New Orleans. What I picked up on and noted was simply uh, that there were ways in which men's complexions were being, enslaved men's complexions were being commented on in certain situations where it was clear that their fair complexion um, played a role in how they were being sexualized. So um, what I mean by that is they would comment on them, and also there are certain adjectives that go with it, as fair, as fine, 
Um, there's actually a series of articles about fancy boys um, that are about enslaved men that I believe are also light-skinned that I did not uh, learn about until after the book was published. So it may be something that I um, work on and see if, if, if that can be developed into an article perhaps. Um, so it doesn't seem that there's a real organized uh, trade or sort of underground market, but there's clearly a way in which their sexualization, their objectification, um, skin tone uh, plays a, a part in that. That is not to argue that light-skinned men were more vulnerable than dark-skinned men, for example. Um, Harriet Jacobs, for example, talks about uh, the practice of selecting um, the most brutalized, um, and here she would be talking about individuals that are more um, in the field, certainly further away from the household and probably had darker complexions. Um, those individuals are also vulnerable. Um, and there's a number of cases we can talk about where um, individuals who are not associated with the household are also um, preyed upon, especially um, by white women in some of the cases. Um, but again, we have this evidence and this explicit commentary on light-skinned men in particular, which, which uh, stood out at me. You, uh, this is further down on page 27, and this all, many you quote uh, Edward Baptist in the book, so there would be some uh, familiarity. But uh, you talk mm -hmm. about some of the demonic methods of torture, and how in many of these methods of torture you can see the sexual violation. This is bottom of 27. Uh, you write Thistlewood boasted in his diary of using what he called. Derby dose, Derby's dose, which involved forcing one enslaved man to defecate in another's mouth. In at least one instance, a man had his mouth shut for hours, unable to remove the excrement. In such instances, both individuals were violated. Thistlewood noted in his diary several different times that he used this punishment. Had Derby had Derby well whipped, this is all quoted, and made Egypt shit in his mouth. Derby catched by Port Royal eating canes had him flogged and pickled delectable Negro then made Hector shit in his mouth two months later Port Royal ran away and after being caught was punished in this manner gave him a moderate whipping pickled him made Hector shit in his mouth immediately put in a gag whilst his mouth was full and made him wear it four or five hours in another entry from the same time period, Thistlewood describes the punishment of two men who were caught after running away. Punch catched at Salt River and brought home, flogged him and Quaco well, and then washed and rubbed in salt pickle, lime juice, and bird pepper. Also whipped Hector for losing his hoe, made new Negro Joe piss in his eyes and mouth. I'll stop there. We should think about this as sexual violation as well, yes? I think so, yes. Um, obviously, I would argue that by including that in the book. Um, I understand that some scholars, uh, I mean, I'm not the first scholar to write about uh, Thistlewood or that practice. Um, I wanted to um, frame it in a different way, in, in a way of intimate violations. Um, And I think that's important for us to think broadly about the ways in which um, bodies, um, intimate spaces, um, intimate bodily functions um, are, uh, we know these things are eroticized by others. Um, 
here I'm not explicitly arguing that Thistle Wood is sexually aroused by this kind of abuse. Um, and yet, uh, it's within the realm of possibility. It's within the realm of possibility that others hearing about it, um, because enslavers talk about and boast about these practices. This is why he's writing about this in his diary. Um, they uh, share different tortures with each other. Um, again, somewhat boastful, but also um, in a way that shares this kind of um, knowledge about tortures. So uh, for me, those are all violations of um, a personal intimate nature. And I wanted to include that um, in, in part to see how, just how broad that universe is of sexual violation. Absolutely. I, that's the sort of thing I would just hear previously and think, oh, you know, that's really gross or, you know, my goodness, but not. Oh, yeah. And I in my view, it's flagrantly obvious that that is uh, Thistlewood is getting some sort of sexual gratification from this uh, delectable mm -hmm. Negro. That is a major theme uh, in Vincent Woodard's text top 10 book, one mm -hmm. of my favorites. Uh, and even you talk about in the text that the the idea of whipping that that is eroticized in and of itself, just whipping a slave because they don't have very many clothes on, right? That's one of the things that you talk about specifically in the text, yes? I do, um, although, again, I think other scholars um, are a little better grounded in this um, theoretically and I think would argue this better than I did. So I rely on their work. Um, and the way I talk about whipping is actually in the same way um, that I would talk about Thistlewood in that I don't have specific evidence of any instances where individuals are whipped that the, enough to argue that the person who is doing the whipping is sexually aroused. I mean, that kind of evidence is just extremely hard to come by. I do still see this, obviously, um, as a sexualized violation, um, often uh, because of the, the comments that enslaved men make about the humiliation of being uh, stripped naked as part of the whippings. So that's one component of it in that the men themselves seem to be yoking their nakedness to the punishment and the penalty separate from the physical punishment. And I think that's somewhat new for us to talk about in that the, um, the men themselves, I think we um, well know, um, talk about the violations of slavery and uh, physical abuses. Um, in particular here, I'm talking about um, formerly enslaved men who then go on to um, be anti-slavery um, uh, activists. Mm. Uh, but I think we talk less about gendered um, abuses and the way that men talk about uh, the humiliation of being naked in front of uh, family members, kin, um, community. So I would say there's a lot going on here. Yes, um, those doing the abuse could be aroused um, and again, could be aroused in a lot of different ways. As I mentioned, could be titillated simply by telling the story to other enslavers, um, sharing it, however. Um, but then there is also what I would consider to be a sexualized violation, um, an experience that is uh, sexual for the enslaved men, um, depending upon the conditions of the, the whipping. In chapter three, uh, you talk about the forced reproduction. Uh, that's something that we should think about as rape. You're right. Uh, some also encourage reproduction by forcing groups rather than specific individuals together. Ida Blackshear Hutchinson, enslaved in Alabama, spoke about this occurrence on her plantation. They used to strip them naked and put them in a big barn every Sunday and leave them there until Monday morning. 
Out of that came 60 babies, end quote, restricted to the barn for night and stripped of their clothing. These young people would have would have known that they were expected to reproduce the pressure to impregnate and to become pregnant as a result of being forced into this closed space together would have been palpable. I'm just skipping down uh, a little bit. This is further almost because it addresses this same forced uh, group action. Then I'll get your response. Okay. So this is on page 66 continuing. Uh, uh, Bottom of forced marriage. She argues caused both physical and mental anguish and may have even caused greater humiliation than concubinage. Since marriage was long-term, a level of resentment and even hatred could more easily be aimed at the enslaved male husband than at the slave master or white overseer. One woman, Mary Gaffney told her interviewer, I just hated the man I married, but it was what master said do in forced coupling the levels of victimhood were multi-layered Irene Robertson recalled that a stockman would be put in a room with some young woman he wanted to raise children from next morning when they came come to let him out the man asked him what he'd done and he was so glad to get out them women nearly kill him if he said nothing they wouldn't have to pay for him the women nearly kill him I just I thought that was so important again going to that notion because I've heard that that being the stud hey that's the life you just you would enjoy it to think wait a minute rethinking Rufus maybe we should step back Mm. maybe this is not the life maybe this is not so cool your thoughts Dr. Foster yeah I mean and you start to think about um, you know that particular mindset that this is this is cool you know that the person is the stud that they are um you know, running things basically. Um, when in fact, uh, you can see that that is um, a veneer basically that a, a person is put on or a way that they are um, sort of shoring themselves up, one would think, um, to get through. So uh, I don't have a ton of examples of uh, groups, as you mentioned, but you, you did share a few that are um, pretty striking. The one from Ida Blackshear Hutchinson is interesting in that I think. You know, when I use that, I was well aware that there are scholars, there's already, as we know, scholars who um, have a lot of concerns about the validity of the WPA narratives. I mean, I, I didn't take any of that on board um, and, and don't take any of that on board. I think they're a fantastic source, um, an extremely rich source. All sources are problematic. I don't believe that it deserves any special uh, caveats, any more special than any source requires. Um, and so I could sort of hear people, um, skeptics saying that this is uh, her particular quote of 60 babies coming from that is a bit much, um, or just this idea of um, a group of, I think they're adolescents, late teens, um, being forced for a weekend into a barn. And as you were saying that, you know, someone might say uh, the man who is being used as a stud is in a fine position. Um, I think you can hear uh, skeptics saying the same thing about these, you know, late teens, you know, imagining somehow that this is a weekend party for them in some ways. This is why I mobilize um, the reminder that these are enslaved children and they're well aware of the position that they are in. Um, They're well aware of the expectations that are put on them, um, the penalties that come for not meeting those expectations. I mean, these these are... um, very troubling circumstances to be put in, um, and and it is it requires I think a person to really sit and reflect and consciously reflect on the conditions of enslavement, um, the power of white supremacy, um, to 
to recognize um, that those are not uh, light moments, basically, for individuals, and to and also to not get caught up in um, some sort of game where you have to um, defend the source um, over someone's superficial accusation that 60 babies couldn't have been born from that. I mean, that that is throwing the baby out with the bathwater, if you will. Then you are really losing sight of, even if she's exaggerated the numbers, of what she's describing um, having occurred. Uh, on 85, or excuse me, on page 89, uh, you write, indeed, as some scholars have argued, the conditions of the Middle Passage itself may have fostered queer relationships among men and among women in the holes of slave ships. Uh, can you talk about some of that theory? I mean, this, I think, is just based on the notion of intimacy. Um, so um, I think we could say the same for um, men and women in, in situations like that. Um, I'm immediately thinking of a scene that was controversial in 12 Years a Slave um, when he is uh, captured and um, masturbates um, a woman with him if I'm remembering the scene correctly, um, and it doesn't come from the narrative. I think it was added in the movie. Um, I really appreciated it because for me, it it brought sort of a level of um, humanity to the moment, um, of, of reclaiming of sexuality to the moment, um, which I found to be really true to other documents, even if it was not in um, that particular narrative. So, I mean, for me, that's sort of similar to the... Um, the conditions of the middle passage somewhat um, or at least analogous just in terms of individuals um, stealing moments for intimacy but also of course um, I, I would not want to argue that all of those moments would be um, pleasurable or shared among individuals equally and there's bound to be also um, abuses um, and hierarchies as we know within enslaved communities and at moments like that when people are being transported um, or kidnapped or um, moved around, those are also particularly vulnerable moments um, when uh, I think there would be greater opportunities perhaps for interactions with individuals, whether they're abusive or or not. Mm. Context of white supremacy, uh, Dr. Thomas A. Foster. Uh, he won't be hanging with us for the whole program, so if you have a question, uh, you should get your hand up right now, 605 313 Five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate uh, in chapter four. This is on uh, page seventy eight. You write Stephen Cole alleged that his wife Mary had a child with a Negro manslave by the name of Richmond, belonging to the estate of Daniel Mc donald deceased or with some other negro man to your petitioner unknown a physician told cole that the baby's color was dark due to the mother's health during procreation but cole then came to believe that the child's real father was a black man in her testimony mary accused her husband of extreme physical cruelty she also interestingly stated that she was frequently compelled to seek protection and sleep in the kitchen among the negroes let me read that. <laughs> uh, she also interestingly stated that she was and this is quote frequently compelled to seek protection and sleep in the kitchen among the Negroes and is not conscious of what may have taken place with her in that condition. But she admits mm -hmm. 
that the child which she has is a mulatto child. That is a direct quote. Wow. Mm. This is, I, you say <laughs> that there are a number of records where divorces happen for this reason. This is not an anomaly. There are a lot of records of, Hey, white woman accusing my husband has been fooling around with the niggers and I'm done. Or the husband saying, Hey, Mary, or Sue has been fooling around with the niggers and I'm done. <laughs> Can you mm-hmm. talk about what that means for this era? Yeah, I mean, there's many more cases of men saying this about white women than white women saying this about white men. Um, and that is obviously partly just because the way the law is set up. It's extremely difficult to get out of a marriage, even an abusive marriage um, in this time for um, white couples. And so it's not surprising um, that we see couples sort of using what they can with the courts, what will resonate with the courts. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, there's a number of scholars that have sort of not poo-pooed this, but they've said, um, you know, the, a lot of these charges to them look trumped up. They look like, in fact, um, they're just um, out to um, criticize uh, the white women, um, that this is how the men um, get out of their marriages. Um, and do so with a lot more ease and freedom than white women. Uh, That being said, there's an awful lot of cases where they talk about um, white women um, having children with black men. Um, The fact that the black men are enslaved, um, for me, means we need to stop and look at these cases and think about what's actually going on. So you've got the situation where you just described where the um, husband is accusing the wife of spending time in the kitchen with enslaved people, um, she gets pregnant. Um, I mean, what if you think about the experience of those enslaved people, um, the dangers of getting caught up in fights between um, an enslaved, I mean, enslavers between a husband and wife who are enslaving the community. Um, this enslaved people are extremely vulnerable in those situations. So to have a white woman um, who is clearly at odds with her husband, your enslaver, and she's your enslaver to come, um, you know, stay there uh, is, I, I, I think one can only imagine the kind of stress that that would put people under. The fact that there's sexual intimacy occurring in that particular situation um, also really makes one um, wonder how that played itself out. Um, And I think we need to keep in mind these are individuals who are not in a position to say no. Um, That is just um, how I approached the um, sex between enslaved people and free people. Um, And enslaved people cannot consent to those sexual um, interactions. And so when you take a situation like this, uh, where it just looks like, well, she's hanging out with um, the help, uh, that is not at all what's happening here. And I think, you know, people, again, need to sort of pause and get back into that moment um, where people are enslaved, um, where when uh, enslaving enslaving couples split, um, that is always um, bad for, for uh, enslaved people and that it often means um, sales, uh, families being broken up, all sorts of um, ways in which instability then is introduced into the community. So, all these things get rolled up into a situation like that where um, she is pregnant um, by an enslaved man um, and in a dispute with her husband. That's a very vulnerable situation for enslaved people and enslaved men to be in. 
Let's see. Uh, Irie dialed in. Did you have a, a question for Dr. Foster? Uh, Irie, you should be with us. Oh, yes. Uh, greetings, and um, thank you for being on the show. I wanted to know if there was any record of black men being kept as um, sexual servants or like eunuchs, I guess. No, not eunuchs, but just sexual servants to um, white men. Um, and maybe that would be an explanation as to why, I guess, um, there's a lot of uh, homosexual um, uh, acceptance and, and deviancy in the black community now. Uh, thanks for your question. Um, I, I don't know of a lot of instances of what you described. Um, there is one very well-known passage um, in Harriet Jacobs' um, account where she talks about a man, an enslaved man named Luke, who is in the description, and it's a very brief description, it's only a few lines where we learn about this individual, chained to um, his master's bed um, and suffers abuses. It's, it's all very, um, it's not explicit in terms of what's written about, but it's clearly um, violations, sexual violations, sexualized violations, um, and other types of violations. Um, the fact that he's chained to the man's bed um, obviously is extremely suggestive of what kind of violations happen. And that is um, from her account, but there is also another instance um, in the book where an individual is, is tied to the bedpost. And again, it's a very suggestive situation. Um, I didn't come across anything in terms of a person sort of being um, a lifelong um, sex slave, I think was the specific question, though um, it's hard for me to imagine that kind of a scenario in that physical labor is also, of course, going to be extracted from individuals. And so individuals can always be called on. Individuals are always vulnerable to sexual violations. I mean, there's one, I think in a way you could argue that um, many enslaved men are basically as vulnerable as what we might imagine in sort of a, a sex slave um, scenario in that they can be called upon and sexually violated at almost any um, moment. So that's another, I think, thing to keep in mind about the conditions of life for many individuals. And of course, um, there's great variance across uh, plantations and, and, uh, and slavers, um, but for many people, there's that constant vulnerability to any kind of abuse, including sexual abuses. Thanks for your question, uh, Irie. I want to get Henry in Chicago's question. Uh, when she gave her response, I was thinking uh, Leva Pancadas uh, about instances of whites keeping uh, enslaved black males uh, for some sort of sexual mm -hmm. use. Uh, you talk about that in the book. Maybe you can, if we can squeeze that in, maybe. But Henry in Chicago, if you had a question for uh, Dr. Foster, you should be with us. Can I be hurt? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings, uh, Dr. Foster. Um, clarification real quick. Uh, did uh, Going over the book, I didn't read the book, but going over it, did you mention, or I think Gus pointed out in the book, that there were relationships fostered on the slave ships uh, through the uh, through the uh, Middle Passage or the transatlantic slave trade? Did, did uh is that correct? 
Well, there isn't really much in the book about the Middle Passage, um, but we had just a few moments ago, I, I'm not sure if you were uh, listening, um, we had just a few moments ago discussed sort of those conditions of the Middle Passage um, and also conditions of um, being moved around, being transported around, uh, the kinds of situations that could present themselves, um, but it was at sort of a general level of discussion. Okay, because the one thing I was thinking about when I heard that, or I think I might have heard it correctly, is, uh, and, and here, here's my ultimate question, how could relationships on a, quote, you know, slave ship, you know, going through the Middle Passage uh, be fostered when, you know, we've read narratives of the conditions of what these slave ships were, you know, mm. overcrowdedness, you know, the sickness, you know, feces everywhere, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, the thing is, how could relationships be fostered in that type of environment, uh, you know, if you want to respond to that? It's certainly, I guess I'm not really thinking about relationships so much as moments of uh, intimacy, moments of tenderness, moments of um, connectedness between individuals. Okay. Thank you. All right, that was it for me. Thank mm-hmm. you, Henry, in Chicago. Uh, Thank you. Azor here in Seattle. Uh, did you have a question for Dr. Thomas A. Foster? You should be with us. Did you have a question, Azor? Or are you just listening in? Maybe she's just listening in. Let's see. Thomas in New York, did you have a question for Dr. Foster? Um, good evening, Gus. Good evening, Mr. Foster. Hi. Um, I did have a question. Um, what would the status of a white woman who has a child with a black milk, if she leaves, does the baby have to stay as a slave? Or even if she stays with her, with her husband, would that child then become a slave? Like, what would, what would happen with that child? It's a great question. It, it kind of depends on the individual's circumstances. In many of those cases, those individuals would be enslaved. That, that was I think that would probably be the most common um, result. And that would be the case, I would think, for um, whether it's the um, husband or the wife um, that had been involved. But again, it it depends um, greatly. Hang on a second there, Thomas. Let me see if I can nab Mm -hmm. some of the uh, caller. Tristan, did you have a question for Dr. Foster? Tristan? Hello, um, hello, Gus. Um, hello, um, Dr. Foster. Um, I have two questions. Just the first one, because I missed some of the beginning. That's the um, most important did, one. Did you... Uh, okay, I can't... He agreed that. with the okay. definition. He agreed with the definition, yes. Okay, all right. So, definition in mind. Um, looking at the historical context of what was happening in the plantation between black people and white people or enslaved people and um, the enslavers, in a contemporary context, should black people be having sexual relations with white people, considering that we're still in a system of white supremacy? And that's my question. Sounds like a great question for another show. And I don't mean that in a dismissive way. I mean, I I can't speak to that. I can't speak to that question. So. Uh, what's your opinion? 
my opinion would be that's a very individual decision, very individual um, choice, personal choice. So um, that's basically my opinion of it. I completely understand the logic um, uh, uh, on either side of it, frankly. Okay. All right. I understand. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Did you have a question for Dr. Foster? Yes. Uh, could the guests give us some sort of uh, uh, history behind slave masters and historical black colleges such as Howard University? In particular, you thinking of? Uh, as far as uh, in some of my uh, studies, uh, especially with Howard, a lot of the uh, female uh, uh, students uh, that were like Miss How Miss Howard University or, or positions such as that uh, appeared to look like uh, that one of their parents was a white person, and I just wanted to know if you have some sort of extensive uh, knowledge that you can share with us on that subject. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't actually. I don't know um, enough about that history at Howard um, or other HBCUs. Have you ever heard of anything like like I'm explaining? Um, I, if I'm, I mean, the only thing I'm thinking of right now is that the the first students are white women. I know that. Um, but in terms of, oh, okay, you're talking yeah. you're talking about offspring of enslaved people. Uh, that one of the parents is uh, a white person. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that the, the first several students are white women, actually, at Howard. Not sure if they're the first degree recipients or just the first students, um, but I believe it's the first four students are white women. Could you explain on why? Um, I believe that they were the children of, I want to say, some of the early board members. I mean, the board, um, Howard is uh, um, a white man, a Civil War general. Um, and there's a number of um, white um, and black individuals that found the university. I believe some of the white board members, I think those are their daughters that go, but I'm, I'm not certain. We'll hang there, uh, retired firefighter. Uh, we had, before we let you go, we'll get in our, our last caller, and I think we actually will have got everyone, I think, that dialed with a question. Uh, Imhan DC, did you have one quick question for Dr. Thomas A. Foster? Yes, sir. Um, my question. Uh, you wrote a book about white people coming to America, enslaving black people, and having sex with even the men. Is it reasonable for white people to leave America to end white supremacy, leave America in six months' time? Uh, was the question, was it, is it reasonable? The call I'm sorry. I, I didn't hear the. Um, I didn't hear your response. Can you say that again, please? Uh, yeah, I was asking. I guess I'm trying to focus on the word "reasonable." Is that your um, question? And do you want to say a little bit more about your question? Um, would uh, I, I did say the word "reasonable"? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm. I'm not sure. Did you? I'm not sure if, if you heard all of my questions. Sometimes 
my words are um, are muted when I speak. So, but if you heard all all of my words, th- those were the words I meant to say. I think I got it. White supremacy. One solution to ending white supremacy would be if all white people left the U.S. within six months. Yes, sir. That sums up what I, um, a lot of what I was saying. Um, I'm not sure what to say. Uh, I'm not sure what to say in response. Um, how can I say no? How can I say yes? Okay. I think I can agree with you that white supremacy needs to end, and that perhaps it takes extreme measures or will take extreme measures. Uh, much obliged, uh, M. Han DC. I'm ready to call in late. Uh, do you have time for a last question? Someone else dialed in. Sure, last last one. All right, uh, caller seven seven six three seven seven six three. Did you have a question for Doctor Foster? Yes, I wanted to know if he had any uh, comments on the history of buck breaking and the sexual repression of uh, black men during the time of slavery. It's a great question. I would love to know more about buck breaking um, in particular. I want to trace the history of when this uh, became known and written about. So um, I don't see that phrase used. I'm well aware of the discussions around it and the way it gets used today. Um, I think it's often used today to talk about sort of an explanation for homophobia, which I don't quite understand. Um, In particular, I think the thing that confuses me about the explanation of homophobia through that is that it just it brackets a lot of other abuses that occurred in in slavery um, between white women and enslaved men, for example. Um, and then also, I think what strikes me the most is that I, I don't see a lot in the records of enslaved men talking about um, this as their primary concern. What enslaved men talk about as their primary concern is the separation from uh, chosen loved ones from spouse, or partner, or wife, um, and their children. I mean, this is this is uh, over and over again what enslaved men um, talk about in terms of the violations of their families and of their ability to choose uh, loved ones. Um, so, for me, buck breaking it may well be um, in there, and I understand also that there's oral tradition um, that um, would escape sort of the traditional methods that an historian uses. Um, But I'm extremely interested actually in trying to do more research on that topic. But again, not not just the topic, but I want to research how the topic developed over time. Um, Because for me, it feels somewhat um, modern, somewhat contemporary in the way that it's at least used. Um, I should say that I'm on Twitter at Thomas A. Foster if um, anyone is interested in using that platform. And if people do tweet about the book, it, it would be great if people could use the hashtag Rethinking Rufus um, so that we could uh, organize those discussions, make them easy to find. Um, and I've really enjoyed being on the program and, and taking the calls. I thank you uh, very much for having me on the show. Oh, thank you so much for uh, hanging out. Uh, we will definitely uh, look forward to speaking with you again and checking out some of your future works. Dr. Foster, Rethinking Rufus, Sexual Violations of Enslaved Men. I did think that enslaved black men would be more accurate because it's not like you have any 
white men who are being sexually violated mm-hmm. in the book. Is, don't you think that would be a more accurate title, Sexual Violations? It, of it probably would be more accurate, yes. Um, I think when I first started the book, I thought of using um, or wanted to see about enslaved uh, Native American men, and I was thinking initially of sort of a broader topic, um, but that very quickly um, narrowed um, the interest is squarely on slavery, on the experiences of black men. So, yeah, I think the title could be Enslaved Black Men. Much obliged, Dr. Thomas A. Foster. Thank you for sharing a bit of your Sunday in the so-called holiday evening, holiday season. Uh, we will definitely look forward. Maybe we can have you back to uh, research more. There's so much on this topic in the text, sir. Thank you again. That would be great. I enjoy that. For sure. Thank- we'll use the ha- give us the hashtag before you leave us. What's it again? Rethinking Rufus. Is that it? Rethinking. Yeah, Rethinking Rufus. Okay. I'll give out a tweet and I'll put the hashtag on it. Thank you so much, Dr. Foster. We'll be in touch. Thank you very much. Be well. Context of white supremacy. Rethinking Rufus. Sexual violations of enslaved men should be enslaved black men because that is the focus of the book. Absolutely. Uh, To Irie's question about keeping uh, black children or black males for sexual purposes. This is in the book, page 92. Slavery in Brazil, some have argued, nurtured a sadistic relationship in the shape of bonds of intimacy with some of these acts taking place among enslaved men in addition to masters. One classic study by Gilberto Freire claimed through the submission of the black boy in the games that they played together and especially the one known as I think this is Leva Pancadas, L-E-V-A hyphen P-A-N-C-A-D-A-S and then in parentheses taking a drubbing that's what that's translated as taking a drubbing I guess this is Portuguese uh, Leva Pancadas the white lad was often initiated into the mysteries of physical love it continued as for the lad who took the drubbing it may be said of him that among the great slaveholding families of Brazil he fulfilled the same passive functions toward his young master as did the adolescent slave under the Roman Empire who had been chosen to be the companion of a youthful aristocrat he was a species of victim as well as comrade in those games in which the premier's Elan's Genesque's first reproductive impulses of the son of the family found outlet and I'll stop there so if you grasp hopefully you understood all that with a little bit of Portuguese in there and and all of that but this was a practice in slavery in Brazil you would have a young black boy and this is your play toy And then as you're maturing, hitting puberty and you're getting sexual urges, you can also use this black boy as a sexual item as you're growing into maturity, that this was a common practice in Brazil. I suspect other places as well. And this has a tradition dating back to the Roman Empire. That's from Rethinking Rufus. Sexual violations of enslaved men. And again, uh, I would put these three books together. The Delectable Negro, Human Consumption and Homoeroticism in U.S. Slave Culture. It is referenced in this book. The Man Not, 
race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. Dr. Curry. Put this one together and maybe even Edward Baptist, the half has never been told because that book also deals a lot with sexual violation. Uh, I was even thinking the slave coast, Ned and Constance Sublet, because they talk about uh, rape being an integral aspect of slavery. Uh, And if you read that with the lens that since forced reproduction, the black male is also being a victim of sexual violation. You will get a lot from that book as well. They were guests on the program uh, in 2000. 16 the day after the Super Bowl that's what I was doing uh the day I think that was the day that the Broncos beat the Panthers in the Super Bowl I spent that day reading the Slave Coast getting ready for them to come on the program we had a we had a program I stopped we did the program and then I went back to reading the Slave Coast a very constructive book one of the better books that I read for 2016 all of that said uh I do think Leva Pancatas could have been a part of his response when Irie gave her question because that's that's right in the text. I think that was right what she was asking about. I think I could be in error. And I do think the title definitely should have been Sexual Violation of Enslaved Black Men or Males. 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 Enslaved Black Males. Uh, let's see. Anything else I wanted to... I'll double check. We Not everybody got to ask a question. And I will again say not to be a spectator. I did say Dr. Foster was not going to be here for the full program. If you hear that, bam, I would have my hand up immediately. Like I know, even if he hangs out, if I listen to a white person talk about racism, even for 10 minutes, I should have at least one question. He was here for an hour. Shouldn't be something where, you know, you got to wait. Don't be a spectator. Hands up, hands up. And I say that because that's been a pattern. We had a program. I can give Cal's history. This is our 10 year anniversary. We, Dr. Welsing was with us, Grand Sester, 2013. She was with us uh, basically a weekend, the weekend after the verdict in the Trayvon Martin murder trial, 2013. She did not get to stay. Uh, she stayed, I'm saying this like this. She was with us for two hours plus she didn't get to hang out for like three hours to take a whole bunch of questions. She got some, but not a whole bunch. So the next time we had her on is a few months, same summer, 2013. I said, we'll go to the callers immediately uh, to compensate since we didn't get to everybody who dialed in with a question last time. As soon as we get on the program, I'm going right to the phone lines. It took an hour before one person had a hand up. I had said this repeatedly. I'm not going to talk. I didn't even have notes because I had no, Hey, whoever says Dr. Welsing's coming on the program and I'm not even going to say this will be all for questions. It took an hour before one person put their hand up. I'm giving this as my observation as a host. There is a lot of spectating. That is absurd. Now think about that. Now that she's gone, you have an opportunity to ask Dr. Welsing a question, any question you like about anything. Nothing comes to mind. It takes an hour before even one question. Take advantage. Do not be a spectator and ask questions. Become excited about opportunities, particularly when you get an opportunity to question white people. Man, wish we had got more time. But he had said that um, initially he was only going to be with us for 30 minutes, uh, Dr. Foster. And I was able to finagle in uh, an hour of talk time. So. Glad we got the time that we did and we were able to get to everybody who had a hand up early. Missed a couple folks at the end, but I think if they had hands up earlier, we probably got them too. Uh, wow. 
anything else that I want to make sure I get in. I think I do have other things I can say about this text, but I'll go ahead and get to the callers. Uh, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, yeah, I'll get to the callers. Let's see. Uh, I'll nab folks that we did not get to hear from at all to see if they have thoughts, even though they didn't get to ask a question. Uh, let's see. Ivy, did you have thoughts, commentary based on what you heard? Um, yes, I did. I didn't have a question for the guest. That's why I um, put my hand up when I did. And I ultimately just put my hand up just in case I had something to say. Um because, I, you know, I was just, you know, taking in the information and something that Irie said actually uh, kind of sparked something in my mind. I really don't understand the, I guess, idea that the slavery and all that stuff that took place hundreds of years ago could have anything to do with the way people behave today. Um. First, I want to say that the data shows that women, no, black women, are homosexuals at double the rate of black men, and that black people are among the lowest, like 5% or something like that, of homosexuals um, overall. But within that 5%, again, Black women are homosexuals at double the rate of black men. And that's not really talked about. It's like people really portray homosexuality within the black group as if it's like a black man thing. Um, and I wouldn't say that it's the black men or black women thing, period, because, again, it's only 5% overall. But if you want to single out a gender... It's interesting that it's always black men being singled out for something. Um, and it's usually lies. And in this case, that is, that is, that, that, that is the case again where it is, it is lies and, and, and black men are being put out there as though they are the perpetrators of, of homosexuality more so than black women. And that couldn't be further from the truth. But whatever the case, even though black women are homosexuals at double the rate of black men, I don't even, I don't understand what that has to do with black women even being raped during slavery and things of that nature. And the same thing with black men being homosexuals today, you know, being raped, you know, back during slavery and things like that. I really just don't um, understand that notion. And I think that why you see this, um, epidemic of homosexuality, period. It's just white people. And by that I mean, and I'm almost done talking, by that I mean the way that they have promoted homosexuality, the way that they penalize you for speaking against it, um, the way that they, the the images that they show you and the images that they don't show you, the people that they put up front and the people that they don't put up front, feminine looking men and 
masculine-looking women and encouraging homosexuals to come and um, announce their homosexuality and their transgender and all these different things, what it does is, and, and then shaming people for being against it and things of that nature. So then you have a lot of um, people, I guess, I guess feeling more comfortable and feeling like it's something wrong with you if you got a problem with their deviance. And I'll, I'll stop there because I don't, I don't want to ramble, but I just, yeah, I don't understand what, you know, hundreds of years ago has to do with today. I think it's, it's a matter of what's going on today and what's going on today is the way that homosexuality is just being forced upon everyone because white people want to control the population. And I'll mute my line. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Gus. Much obliged, Ivy. Uh, be in Toronto. We are preparing for our retreat in Florida coming up. But I did take maybe mm, two minutes today to look at possible locations for a Toronto retreat for later 2020. I did do so. Be in Toronto. Did you have any thoughts uh, you wanted to share? Yes. Um, good evening to you, Gus, to callers and listeners. Um, just to uh, take a, a quick note, uh, there was one location in Toronto that I was looking at, and it was a um, black-owned uh, hotel. Uh, that was, uh, I believe, it's off of uh, Keel. Um, unfortunately, it's no longer black-owned, and uh, it's turned into uh, a site for for uh, refugees. So still looking around uh, to see what would be um, most appropriate in terms of a venue. So I will get back to you on that. I am still actively searching. Um, but yes, uh, to go to um, my commentary regarding the situation with um, uh, the the guest that you had. Um, similar to Ivy's point, I, I found that it was also interesting. Um, with the homosexuality, uh, whenever I hear um, white people, and I've been noticing this on, on the plantation and, and even in, in other social circles, um, not of my choosing, but having to go because I have to. Um, you know, there, there's this thing of where, where somehow black people are against homosexuality. And whenever I hear that, then I, I usually bring them back to, um, well, the song, That's What Friends Were For by Dionne Warwick, um, Stevie Wonder, Elton John, and I believe there was a fourth person, but I can't remember. And that was during the um, the AIDS epidemic, where the news had just broken, and that was just in the early '80s. And at that time, uh, whites, uh, through all their media, were actively saying, um, "Those with HIV/AIDS, you you got to stay away from them. You don't if, if they sneeze, if they cough in your vicinity, you can catch AIDS." Things of that nature. And I was like, and I remember in that song there were three. Um, and I've named the three uh, black artists um, who had donated their money, Dionne Warwick, uh, Stevie Wonder, and there's one other person for the life of me I can't remember. Uh, perhaps someone can help me out with that. 
um, that donated all their money um, towards um, from that song towards the HIV AIDS um, epidemic, and uh, were spreading the message of you know people diagnosed with AIDS are people too, and they were mainly saying that it was a gay disease. That's what the white media were saying at the time that it was a gay disease. Um, uh, and, and the disease for drug addicts. So I'm like, it's just interesting how the pendulum shift where, you know, it's, it's, well, mainly black people who were, um, saying, you know, uh, be compassionate to others. And it was whites that were ostracizing them. And now here we're being accused of ostracizing homosexuals, which is unusual, uh, cause we don't have a, we don't have a history, nor do we have the power to ostracize anybody at this time, um, nor have we ever since uh, slavery. So uh, I always found that rather interesting. Um, but it, it goes along the lines of what they do best, right? They're, um, I, right now, the, the way that I, I see it, the symbols of uh, white supremacy is that of a spider. They're just running a web of lies. And um, how it uh, comes to black males, um, I'm happy that Rethinking Rufus um, was brought as a subject to um, indicate that it wasn't just black women being raped, but it was also black men too. So it's a whole people being raped. Um, where the uh, feminists would like to use it as a weapon, saying that it's only black women that were being raped and not taking into consideration that those who were considered bucks were also being raped too because they're being forced to do things they did not want to do. In addition to that, what the uh, the white slave masters would used to do in the tropics, I'm not quite sure if they did this in, in the States as well, but they used to put paper bags or bags over the females and males uh, who were being forced to um, have sex, engage in sex. And what they would do is they would force um, mothers and sons, fathers and daughters, brothers and sisters to engage in this sexual activity. So it was also a source of humiliation as well. Um, in addition to buck breaking, where they would take the strongest black male and rape him in front of women and children and the other male. So these people, well, these creatures um, that engage in this and the descendants of these creatures that did this, um, I, I, I don't know why anyone would ever want to be friends with them. Um, I don't know why anyone would want to sleep with them, much less speak with them. I... Yeah, I'm I'm just in that space right now where I just uh, I just oh I'm sorry it's it's just too painful for words right now. Um, but thank you. I leave the line. Much obliged to be in Toronto. Thank you for checking on locations. Very difficult planning those types of events. Nine zero two nine. Do you have questions? Thoughts? Uh, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, callers and listeners. Um, got on a little bit too late to uh, actually ask a question, but I I was very curious in regards to how his work is how.
Not hearing you. We're not hearing you. Uh, may I be heard? Okay, we can hear you now. If you want to start over. Uh, yes. Um, greetings, callers and listeners. Um, thanks again, Gus, for the platform. Got on a little bit late on the line, but um, I just was trying to take care of things. But I really wanted to know in something that you uh, said yesterday in regards to black men, um, non-white people getting attention for their writing on racism, uh, white supremacy, um, and then in contrast to white authors and the attention that they get. Um, but I also see that there are specific authors that do get attention. And I don't, from what I'm understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't see this author as getting as much attention in regards to his work. And I think that was the question I wanted to, to ask him in regards to how does his work and Dr. Curry's uh, get accepted in, the acad in academia um, with things like intersectionality and all these other aspects in academia, white, white females mainly dominating that discussion and, and pushing that, that, that same narrative of, of the black male being the quote-unquote animal savage beast. And that, that was really where I really wanted to get at because I'm kind of curious to see how it affects him as a white male compared to Dr. Curry as a non-white male. So that, that was something that I, I was curious about as well. Um, and, and another author that I, I, and I don't know if anybody else could answer the question, but Ta-Nehisi Coates seems to get a lot of, a lot of attention. Um, and I've looked at some of his videos when he's being interviewed and it tends to be a predominantly white audience. And I'm unsure as to why he gets so much attention, even though he writes on things such as, um, reparations and, um, redlining, he speaks very in depth and has a lot of information, but I still, I don't, I don't know why he garners so much attention as compared to others, because I, I don't see him. I don't know. I don't see him in the same lines as other authors that are a little bit more confused about racism, white supremacy. Um, but th anyway, those are, those are some of the questions I, I was kind of looking to throw on the table. And if anybody wanted to address them or discuss them, please go right ahead. Thank you. I'll meet my line. Yes, sir. Uh, I would, my observation, Thomas A. Foster's work, uh, rethinking Rufus, this book has not gotten anywhere near the same type of attention as how to be an anti-racist. That's a book written by a victim of racism, uh, ostensibly for white people, some sort of as though they need a manual on what racism is and how to solve this problem. Uh, he's on NPR democracy now everywhere that, I mean, that would have been great. Like Dr. Foster, are you going on NPR to talk about this? When is your segment on rethinking Rufus democracy? Now, Amy Goodman, my BFF, is she bringing you on? Uh, to talk about this uh, MSNBC they say they're uh, liberal right uh, Rachel Maddow is she you know getting out of time segment to have you on like I don't think so I don't think that you mentioned Dr. Curry I know he has talked about on this program and many other platforms uh, the attacks that he has suffered uh, and people saying that you're just caping for black males and making excuses for no count lazy feverish uh, nigra males uh, I just don't see that type of attention uh, ta Coates is a victim of racism. This is not necessarily something that he talks about, although he did recommend that people read Edward uh, Baptist's book, which was mentioned this evening. That's how we read it. He mentioned we read his book and then we read Edward Baptist, The Half is Better Men Told. I think that's a much better book. I see ta Coates' work promoted 
much more often. So that's why I said with Clifford Thompson, this system racist, that is a part of their strategy, I think, to promote the lie that non-white people, victims of racism, we are experts on racism, which is false. And then they'll go out and pick out victims who talk about racism. Maybe sometimes they're accurate. Frequently they are not. And they'll be promoted as the experts on racism. Uh, but yeah, I don't think this, I mean, you all can check for yourself and see, do you see Thomas A. Foster rethinking Rufus uh, or anybody else talking about this subject matter heavily promoted? I think someone called in yesterday and said that they were looking for a speaker to come in and talk to white people about racism. Hey, I just heard a great author rethinking Rufus. This might be something interesting to talk about. See what they say. Uh, I think we nabbed the folks who had hands up that we did not get to hear from at all. Uh, so the other people who were with us, even if you did get to ask a question, uh, if you had a comment, question, thought you wanted to add in, line should be open. Hello? Irie, yes, ma'am. Yeah, uh, yeah, okay. So I just want to say, I didn't, I was getting a little bit nervous and tongue-tied in my head because I knew it wasn't much time and I knew other people needed to get a chance to ask a question, but the reason why I asked him that, and uh, pardon me, you know, I'm I'm still learning. Um, I, what I should have said was, were there any instances of uh, pederasty? Because that's the word for it um, when he talks about what they the practice in Greece and Rome is, is pederasty. And they had a practice of uh, the men would pick a young man out or a young boy out to be his lover and his protege. So they would teach him their 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 skills and also be in sexual relationships. So I was wondering if they were kind of practicing that pederasty with the uh, enslaved men because you know I don't know I'm I I need to say you know my frame of reference is New Orleans and in the 90s growing up um, there was a lot of showcasing and I would say self-showcasing um, by uh, gay men or gay young men, and they were known in the city as, as they would call them punks, and they would call themselves punks. And as I got older, I would read more, and I read a book by a man or a, a woman, Lord, a guy, a transgender, there we go, a transgender man. He called himself the Lady Chablis. And he mentioned that growing up, he was always soft-spoken. He liked women's clothes, so forth and so on. He wasn't abused. He said he was not sexually molested or anything. He was just always that way. So I always wondered, like, is it a sort of epigenetics, perhaps? Maybe something happened where men in the family were, you know, sexually subjugated over and over and you know now it's just in them or you know I'm just that's why I ask that because I've just you know I've seen you know like I said my frame of reference is there are certain men in societies that are non-white that have been isolated and identified as a, a source of sexual pleasure for white men and I also cross-reference to the lady boys of, you know, um, Thailand and and other places in uh, Asia where men, particularly white men, know 
that they can go there for sexual pleasure from these young boys. And, you know, it's a practice now. And they're being kept by these men, meaning they're being paid well, you know, to be gay. So, I mean, that can be passed down, in my opinion, I think, you know, from what I've read. So, I, I don't know. That's why I was asking that. But I'm not trying to blame black people for being the the monikers or the, the folks people for being gay, not at all. But it, it is something that's going on with black men, and it was bad for black men in the 90s especially, and now, because there's a guy called Big Frida. He's really popular, and he's gay. He's gay. And it's he's being glorified and, and uplifted for that. Thank you. Much obliged, Irie. Uh, can happen to the best of us. Uh, we are all still learning, uh, or at least I am, and I think many of the rest of us, and uh, just trying to get the correct words together. Uh, did other folks have questions, comment? They wanted to make sure they got in? Can I be heard? Imhan DC? Yes, sir. I wanted to say he's one of the smarter white people, and that using a small time frame to for questions is a good strategy to make people either fumble on their questions or like um, one of the callers was saying uh, she was having a difficult time because she had to do so much consideration. Um, so that's a tactic. And uh, the other thing is, White people are the worst people in the world. They're the worst creatures in the world. They're the worst thing that has ever happened to us. The worst thing that has ever happened to us. Um, thank you. Amhon DC. Uh, did any of the people who have seen an image of Dr. Foster? Did anybody here uh, see anything that would lead them to think there might be any ambiguity or any reason to question, oh yeah, this person, there might be some question about his racial classification or do folks who have seen him just say, oh yeah, he just looks like someone who'd be classified as white to me. When I... uh, Racially ambiguous. Sorry, Mr. Firefighter. I mean, my life. When you uh, brought it up to me, I looked at the picture, and the first thing I thought through my eye to my uh, the eyes in my brain was white male. That's what I thought. I, I think what probably would throw people off is the uh, Fu Manchu style uh, mustache. That may that may uh, be something because that's traditionally something that black males do. Uh, as far as wearing on their face. But uh, when I saw it, it it told me white male. That's it. Can I be hurt? Chicago. Um, Just looking at the image, uh, I had no question that this, uh, this person was a, was a white male. Uh, I just, I just was kind of taken aback, you know, considering you know, he's writing a book about, you know, uh, racism and black male, uh, black slaves uh, being uh, raped, you know, uh, in slavery and probably now as well by, by white people. So, 
and then being a professor at a you know historically black college uh, was probably the only thing that would make me take a second look. But if I would just looked at the picture alone and not know that he was a professor at Howard or wrote a book, you know, uh, Rethinking Rufus, I would have thought that this person was a white man. Much obliged. Uh, did... May I be heard? Uh, be in Toronto. Yes, when I, I when I took a look at the picture, um, at first my my first reaction was uh, possibly a, a white male, um, but then when I went back and looked at the picture again, I wasn't quite sure. Um, my my next my next thought was. Um, how how close was he more lower cast white or like how like he he wouldn't be considered a nordic white so to speak like a scandinavian um but he he might even be mixed with with other ethnicities um but then the next thing i'm wondering too um is i had a question of his sexuality and then I also had a question of not only his sexuality, but then why would he have written this book, Rethinking Rufus, and will this be another trauma drama, trauma porn, you know, for whites that will review this book, um, much like Uncle Tom's Cabin and, and any other book that um, deals with... Um, with uh, the trauma that the black community has received, in particular black male. Thank you, and I leave the line. Good question. I will say Uncle Tom's Cabin, that became like a bestseller. It's still a bestseller. Um, is required reading still, even after over 150 years since that book uh, was published. Uh, it's still required reading in many academic circles. Uh, we had to read it uh, in school. Uh, I don't know that rethinking Rufus is going to be on the syllabus uh, that like audience. I think this, the audience for this book is going to be very select. Like I think this is, and I think it's a part of a series. I have to look at the, the cover image uh, to see what it says. Let's see. What does it say at the bottom? gender and slavery oh i think it's in the the actual text it's a part of a series of books that are in the gender and slavery series dana ramey berry edited this book that is so important she's supposed to be a guest on the program she wrote uh their pound of flesh uh which is about the ongoing abuse of black people even after death and things that they would do to black people taking the uh, bodies digging up graves all of that and it was during the flood and victim of racism but she edited this book I'm going to see if we can get her on the program hopefully I can use that as leverage like we're not you know or I am not oh man and Edward uh, Baptist was on the advisory board he should get him on the program too but uh, for Dana Ramey Berry I'd already been in contact with her uh, she responded she was game uh, yeah, I will see if we can get her on the program, but folks should read her book as well. She's a black, uh, female, but this is a part of a series unless I aired, make sure. Does it say, 
Oh, that's it. Gender and Slavery series. That's the series. I had it. It was that simple. It's part of the Gender and Slavery series. I suspect uh, might even have some connection to because uh, the gender studies often is connected with LGBT studies uh, as well. There'll be a connection there. Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, Gus. I cut you off. I apologize. Um, I looked at his picture. I can't think of an instance where white people would accepts him as a white person. Um, but he does have a little um, curl to his um, beard, his mustache, if that's the right picture, uh, which kind of, you know, gives him that look. Um, but a lot of white people, at least here, you know, Italians have that, Jews, certain Jews, you know, so it's, it's common. Um, I thought the, the book was interesting. Um, the, the, the conversation was interesting. Um seems like a, a topic. I think to answer the, the other um, caller's question, a lot of um, black people, when they write about racism, white supremacy, or even talk about it, they um, sound very accurate about what they're saying, but they write or speak from a premise where white people are somehow ignorant, you know, or they don't understand it. Like they're teaching them, like this is a, teachable moment for white people too and white people love that so their stuff sells a little bit more there are other black people who are not giving them that out um, who's not trying to think of them as being somehow you know oblivious to what's going on um so uh, i think even that quote you read to white people um gosh, most white guests I, I i missed the beginning 10 minutes or so of the show but um that quote you read um, from Mr. Coates, you know, kind of shows um, how they, you know, by their answer, kind of shows that, you know, they, they kind of want to have that out. You know, they don't want to be um, responsible. You know, some of them are honest and say, yeah, white people are not, you know, um, they don't care, you know, but it, it's just the way that they write. I think white people like that. It, it makes them feel like, you know, I could go talk to this black person and, you know, they'll accept me as an equal. They're not going to look past all the race. They're going to look past all the race stuff that's been done because I'm different. You know, they, they love that. Agree. Uh, promoting an accurate understanding of white supremacy racism. Interestingly, I did not ask Dr. Foster the question, the quote from ta Coates because I knew you wasn't going to be here for the full program so I was trying to maximize uh, as much material as I could get from the book and then uh, the callers uh, said I will forego that question unless we get enough time I can come back and ask later and didn't have time so I didn't even ask him that one today uh, let's see other folks who are with us if you have a question comment you want to make sure you get in maybe here Ivy. Yeah, um, I wanted to say to Ari, I wasn't, um, you know, accusing you of, of promoting that, you know, black men are homosexuals or even that um, the slavery that took place um, hundreds of years ago has anything to do with today and that you're, you're promoting that it does. Um, I was actually referring to, when I, when I said that part, I was referring to the, the author himself because he, well, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't, I, I can't really say that he was, I guess, drawing the connection between the things that took place in slavery and the way people are acting today. But I know that 
that notion is pushed a lot. Like, for example, what's that book called? Um, Post-traumatic slavery or something, slave syndrome or something like that. Um, and in terms of it just being promoted that black men are the homosexuals uh, in our group, um, I would say white people, I'm really referring to them when I'm talking about how that's being promoted and they have deceived black people into believing that. And the way that they promote that is having all these men in dresses, Tyler Perry and a bunch of other uh, different people. I wanted to say that um, the author, he didn't seem confident when he said he was white. So I'm I'm um, skeptical about whether or not white people accept him as white. Um, and I, as I said, I think it was yesterday that I thought he was either white or Mexican. Um, but either way, I mean... Say white, so he's a race older to me, but I, I'd still wonder that if they accept him as that. Um, and to your comment, Gus, about you know, some people might say, you know, you may be taping for black men and things of that nature. My question for people, because people do say that, my question for people who say stuff like that is, what's wrong with that? Black men, they should be taped for, they, they have value. Black people, too, black, black women, black children. Um, ain't nothing wrong with that. I cave for black men. They need to be. They're the most vulnerable vulnerable people on the planet. Like they get um, physically abused more than anyone, and then get psychologically abused to justify their physical abuse. And every uh, most people they 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 join in on that. And so it's it's very rare that anybody is coming to black men's defense. And you know, Tommy Curry is actually one of very few, and there needs to be way more. Um, so like I said, I, I care for black men and other people should do it too and should not be shamed for that. And I'll mute my line. Much obliged, Ivy. Uh, mania, you are with us. That is interesting. I have to go back and listen to Dr. Foster's response when he was asked about being white. He did say there was another instance where there was a question about it. And it's been my experience. Generally, the people who say that they are white is as what Mr. Fuller say. Individuals who are classified as white, when it's time to mark the form, boom, white, that's it, moving forward. It's no, there was this one time where this fella thought or was curious. I have to go back and listen to that to see, listen to it again. Uh, interesting observation, Ivy. Uh, mania. did you have commentary? Just listening, or did you have question, comment? No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had myself on mute. Um, hi, hi, Gus. Can you hear me now? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, hi to Gus and the callers and the listeners. Um, I just wanted to make a comment that um, I'm I'm now reading um, uh, Uncle Tom's uh, Cabin. I didn't read it when I was in school. It wasn't uh, mandatory reading for me. So um, thanks to the program, I um, started reading the book. I'm halfway almost almost done with the book now but um i also wanted to state that um uh back i say back in 2015 i started um this is when i was still on social media and before i um was introduced to the uh, cow program i was doing some research and i was trying to find out um about um male black uh male um black slaves that were um rape during slavery. So as I was doing my research, um, I found that it, at that time, it was very hard for me to get any type of information on um, 
on uh, uh, the um, the rate of uh, black males. And then all of a sudden, I think within maybe a couple of months uh, scan, more information started coming out because like when I was, when I put little information that I did find out, I was posting it on, on um, social media, um, mainly Facebook. And every time I would post the, um, in the article and the uh, video and information in regards to uh, bus breaking, um, Facebook would take the, uh, they would tag it and take it down immediately. I mean, I had had to post that article about maybe about three or four times. But for some reason, they just did not like the fact that I was posting it up on um, Facebook. But then eventually what started to happen, it seems like um, right after that, more information started to come out in regards to um, the whole um, joint slavery, how um, black males were raped. And I would say, logically speaking, and common sense, is if, um, if homosexuality didn't just uh, occur, um, during, um, and like in this time period that we have right now, this is something that has been going on since, like we discussed since the Roman times. And if it was going on back then, and we know that this is something that comes out of their culture, then it would only be logical that, um, you know, they had to have been doing that to black males also. But I just found it, I was just found it very, very, um, curious. I was very curious as to why they never would discuss the fact that the males were being raped, but they never had an issue with discussing the fact that females were um, were raped. And you know, the narrative the narrative has always been that um, that you know, like it was only females, it was only females. But like now, you know, now this information is coming out, and like I said, by listening to your show. You know, um, more information. I've been learning more in regards to that whole topic, also. But, um, like you said, it's. I think it's just something that during, if you look at the whole um, during the Roman times and during the Greek um, times, how um, uh, the pedophilia and how they liked young boys, and and then you were talking about with the uh, with the um, author about the clothing. And how I mean, if 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 people are running around with no clothes on, I mean that's just logical that that would right there would definitely be sexual. Um, that's sexualization and objectification of um, um of an individual of an individual when you're not allowing them to put on clothing. And I think just naturally people would be attracted and be attracted to somebody if they're not, you know, or sexually attracted to someone if they're not wearing um, clothing, especially if you're um, a sexual deviant. So, um, yeah, I mean, and I just thought also, I thought it was just definitely, I almost had to put the phone down when he was talking about how um, the slave master made... um, made one of the other slaves defecate in another slave's mouth. The only thing I can say is, like, the things that we had to go through when we, it, it's just, it's just so, so appalling. And it's like you can't even phantom the things that were, that we had to go through. And we're still going through. And, you know, it's just like, wow, I, 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 I just don't even have words for it, but. That's all I want to share. And thanks for allowing me to talk. Yeah. To Blige's Draftomania. Uh, I will get the truck driver. I just wanted to share 
Oh man, maybe he dropped out. Truck driver, if you are with us, uh, I was going to your line next. Just give us a ring back and I will get your line. Uncle Tom's Cabin. This is from our guest tonight, uh, Thomas A. Fa- Dr. Thomas A. Foster's Rethinking Rufus. He writes, this is on page 108. I'm going to read uh, quite a little bit because I was fascinated by this. I mean, I, I'm, I'm even going to read the footnote because I highlighted that. Uncle Tom's Cabin, first published in 1852, vividly captured the peculiarity of the relationships that existed between enslaved valets and owners by depicting an effeminate slave owner and his slave in scenes that implied degeneracy and implicit sexual deviance. Stowe defended her work against pro-slavery critiques who decried it as wholly fictional. She argued that it was rooted in realities and that it captured the kinds of abuses that were known at the time representing cultural knowledge of the potential for sexual abuse within the bonds shared between enslaved men and masters. Stowe's creation of a dandified enslaved valet named Adolf illustrated the corrupting influences of enslavement on masters and slaves. We are first introduced to Adolf with the following description. Foremost among them was a highly dressed young mulatto man, evidently a very distinguished personage, attired in the ultra extreme of the mode and gracefully waving a scented cambric handkerchief in his hand. I'm just stopping right here because this book was published in 1852. I just saw RuPaul. This is 1852. Continuing. He is depicted as having an unhealthy devotion to his own appearance as well as to the welfare of his master at the expense of his bond with the enslaved community. Back, all of you, I am ashamed of you, he said in a tone of authority as he confronted domestic slaves who were anticipating greeting their master. The passage continued, all looked abashed at his elegant speech delivered with quite an air. He is described as fastidious and vain, conspicuous in satin vest, gold guard chain and white pants and bowing with inexpressible grace and suavity the tenderness between master and slave in conjunction with these aspects of the slave's character and appearance draw a sharp line around the their unwholesome bond in quotes ah adolf is that you said his master offering his hand to him how are you boy while adolf poured forth with great fluency an extemporary speech which he had been preparing with great care for a fortnight. In another scene, he scrutinizes another male slave, Tom, through an opera glass with an air that would have done credit to any dandy living. In quote, his indulgent master is marked by a similar softness that immediately calls into question the nature of their bond. Puh, you puppy, said his master, striking down the opera glass and then laying his finger on the elegant figured satin vest that Adolf was sporting, a stained garment that the master used to wear. In response, Adolf tossed his head and passed his fingers through his scented hair with grace. In very striking ways, Adolf's queerness also stood in contrast to traditions of homosocial bonding and same-gender intimacy and served to create tension rather than facilitate the type of same-gender bonding that was important was an important part of survival for enslaved men and women. Adolf's effeminacy and closeness to his master cost him his manhood and instead made him vulnerable to conflicts with other enslaved men. Consider the following exchange which occurs as he and other slaves are being sold away, one of the most traumatic experiences for enslaved communities. In the description of this scene, Sambo carelessly dismisses their sadness laying his hand freely on Adolf's shoulder. 
Adolf responds in a manner that speaks to his discomfort with homosocial bonding. Please to let me alone, said Adolf, fiercely straightening himself up with extreme disgust. In response, he is mocked as white, kind o cream color, you know, scented. I say keep off, can't you, said Adolf, enraged. His feminized response results in more mocking. Lore, now, how touchy we is, we white niggers. Look at us now. And Sambo gave a ludicrous imitation of Adolf's manner. Here's the airs and graces. We's been a good family, I specs, in quote. I belong to the St. Clair family, said Adolf proudly. Stowe's depiction of this fictional slave and his master was used to highlight the immorality of enslavement and its corrupting influence on masters and slaves alike. For our purposes, we might also read Stowe as a particular kind of evidence of communal knowledge and of oral culture. Such characterizations and exploitative relations reflect the experiences of some enslaved men, albeit in varying degrees. Uh, I will end there. And this is footnoted with a lot of different reports uh, talking about whether or not this is true. And then. Oh, here it is for a queer reading of Tom and St. Clair. See P. Gabriel Foreman, this uh, promiscuous housekeeping, death, transgression and homoeroticism in Uncle Tom's cabins. Uh, that's in representations number 43 summer of 1993 it's about 20 pages uh, if you want to check that out uh, that is for Uncle Tom's Cabin if you're going to read uh, and I guess to the point what I just read from that passage that type of description that sounds like precious it's been a long time since I've read Uncle Tom's Cabin but that sounds like precious that sounds like Negro trauma drama that sounds like a bestseller Rethinking Rufus doesn't quite sound as appeal. Like I said, I don't know when he's going to be on NPR. Anyway, rethinking uh, truck driver or anybody else. If you want to dial in, get your comment before uh, we conclude. I did want to add in. Uh, I taught yoga yesterday, and it was an early morning class. I was subbing for a different person's uh, class, and I had to get up. I was going to the class, disgruntled about it. Got there. It's raining cold in Seattle. There's a reason I plan to retreat in Florida for this time of year because it is cold and dark and rainy every day in this part of the world until about May. So I'm going to class eight in the morning, seven in the morning, really uh, in the rain and cold. Find $40 in a puddle on the ground. I say, well, I don't do the watermelon dance or anything like that. I say, well, $40 not too bad like hey wouldn't have uh, found that if I had not been out doing yoga if I had still been in bed yeah anyway I said I have never been so excited to see old hickory Andrew Jackson's face it was two wet 20s crumpled up Uh, and it reminded me since they're doing all the highfalutin uh, talk about the what they call it impeachment four more years since they're doing all that conversation they had a piece uh, talking about other U.S. presidents who have faced impeachment uh, and this goes directly to racism white supremacy as everything does uh, and it was about old hickory 
I said, I will see if we can include this in the segment. I missed it before, but I have time to include it now. Uh, this is uh, NPR uh, report that they had from, I reckon, a week ago. I was going to play it on the compensatory call-in, but uh, Stymie got confused, uh, didn't play it for whatever reason, so I'll play it now. Andrew Jackson, uh, his impeachment and what that has to do with the system of racism, white supremacy. Play this really quick, then we'll check in, see if folks have any other comments, questions to share context of white supremacy. We've talked on this program with people who worked on President Clinton's impeachment and President Nixon's trying to gain insight into the impeachment of President Trump. Well, our next guest argues that the best historical comparison is to a presidential impeachment that took place 150 years ago against Andrew Johnson, who became president after Abraham Lincoln's assassination. Manisha Sinha is a history professor at the University of Connecticut. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. Before we get to the impeachment itself, tell us about the man who was Andrew Johnson. So Andrew Johnson was a unionist, actually, during the Civil War from Tennessee. So because of that, he was rewarded by being made the military governor of Tennessee by Lincoln during the Civil War, and then finally was Lincoln's vice president. You describe Johnson as one of the most reviled presidents in American history. But that's not enough to get someone impeached. So why did impeachment proceedings ultimately begin against him? The reason why he was impeached was mainly his racist objections to black citizenship and to this whole program of reconstruction, which was to establish an interracial democracy in the South. So Congress passes a law called the Tenure of Office Act that prevents Johnson from firing Union Army officers and from firing Lincoln's Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, who were really overseeing this process. And Johnson violates it by firing Stanton even though he had earlier assured Republicans that he would not do that. So this is about presidential overreach, executive abuse of power. Absolutely. It was presidential overreach. And as they say very clearly in the articles of impeachment, that he was encroaching on congressional power and had actually disrespected Congress, had obstructed Congress, which is also one of the articles of impeachment that was laid out yesterday against Donald Trump. So I was going to ask what other parallels you see here when you read the articles of impeachment from 150 years ago and from yesterday. Both impeachments have a smoking gun. Uh, for Johnson, it was violation of the Tenure of Office Act. For Trump, it was his phone call with the Ukrainian president. But both presidents also had a pattern of seeming to violate national interests, national ideals, playing on racial divisions in the country. I think in that way, they are both somewhat similar. In last week's House Judiciary Committee hearing, another parallel between the Trump and Johnson impeachment came up. It was legal expert Jonathan Turley who said this. I believe that this is much like the Johnson impeachment. It's manufactured until you build a record. I'm not saying you can't build a record, but you can't do it like this. Whether or not you agree that the record for the Trump administration is insufficient, do you think it's true that the record with the Johnson impeachment was kind of manufactured and ad hoc? 
I wouldn't agree that it was manufactured because there were 11 articles of impeachment against Johnson and the first nine very clearly pointed to the so-called smoking gun, which was violation of the Tenure of Office Act. One could see that as Congress uh, sort of encroaching on executive privilege, but that in fact was a response to Johnson's obstructionism and his attempt to disregard federal law when it came to Reconstruction because he was turning a blind eye to racial terror, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, etc. If, as expected, the Trump impeachment moves on to a trial in the Senate, what would you look for to see whether these parallels continue with Johnson? Well, that's where the parallel will break down. It's quite clear that the Republican Party today is lockstep and barrel behind Trump and that no matter what happens, they are not going to vote to convict him. And since they do have a slight majority in the Senate, it seems conviction is unlikely. But I do think that the entire process is important to make sure that presidents don't think that they're above the law and that we don't completely give up on checks and balances, separation of powers that have been put into place by the founders of the American Republic. That's history professor Manisha Sinha of the University of Connecticut. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you for having me, Ari. Context of white supremacy. Made an error. I said Andrew Jackson was Andrew Johnson. Made an error. I was so uh, excited, I guess, by my find. And Andrew Jackson was no friend of the Negri either. Wrong racist, but still wanted to make sure I got that segment in because it is exactly as they said, the parallel around racism, white supremacy. Uh, Father folks, any other comments? Rethinking Rufus, our topic of the day, uh, truck driver in Houston. If you uh, want to make sure you get your comment in, I will be looking out for you on the switchboard or any of the other folks who are with us. If you had any other comments, questions. We'll be here for the book club on Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. It seems there probably will not be workplace racism on Friday because I will be in transit. However, we could do neutralizing workplace racism on a different day from the retreat. I have to think about that as an option. But it seems very unlikely it will happen Friday at normal broadcast time. Um... Yeah, I'll be well. Actually, let me think about that. Let me look at my ticket again. See when I'm getting there. Uh, do I have my? I have to look at my itinerary again. Uh, I think I am arriving a little bit earlier than what I originally anticipated. If that is the case, uh, we might be able to do workplace racism after all. We'll just be doing it from Florida. Let's see. All right. Let's see. Mm. Buddy, we are doing workplace racism on Friday. I should be there. I'll take, let me walk that back. It looks very possible that we could easily do workplace racism on Friday. Very, very possible. I should be in Orlando three hours before workplace racism goes live. So it is very possible that we could do workplace racism 
on Friday. I'll have to think about it. Uh, and I have to see because, you know, sometimes the, that's the other thing, too. I don't like having things scheduled that way. Uh, that's why I'm getting there a day early, because then it's like, oh, man, if the flight is late and that sort of thing. So I'll walk that back a little bit. We'll have to see if the flight cooperates and all of that. Uh, so to be announced, maybe Ivy. Oh, yes. Yeah, about that? I just want to say, um, Gus, thank you for the program and thank you for um, having, I believe it's like four shows and four programs in a row and plus the, the, the retreat and everything is coming up. Just thank you so much for your, your hard work. And I know that it, it's got to be very exhausting for you to have to, for you to have done all these programs in a row. So just thank you so much for your work and I'll mute my line. Much obliged. Counter racist grun. Uh, white people work hard to practice racism, white supremacy. Uh, we should be uh, dedicated in our practice to solve this problem immediately. Uh, hopefully, you know, worthy of time and energy today. Wow. 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 It was. Wow. <laughs> it was just working program. Oh, retreat, retreat, retreat. All right program rethinking Rufus everything okay retreat yep 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 Whew. can I go to the bathroom oh wait a minute retreat 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 okay program that was about what today looked like Whew. anything else folks wanted to make sure that they get in can I do it Henry in Chicago uh, yes yeah, so I think it was uh, the previous caller draftomania who mentioned about <clears throat> You know uh, the uh, uh, the rape of uh, black people and um, the suppression of the rape of black males compared to the rape of black females. And um, you know the only thing that I would say is I know that this this study of uh, black males being raped during slavery uh, is. Uh, kind of fairly uh, new in the academic circles when you talk about it, uh, like you mentioned, Dr. Tommy Curry and Vincent Woodard has uh, written books about this is because, you know, uh, obviously white people uh, have suppressed this history uh, because, uh, you know, obviously it's bad enough that they didn't think of us or they still don't think of us as human. So, you know, why would they, you know, why would they, you know, bring out this information about, you know, having sex with non-humans, much less having uh, homosexual relationships with non-humans. And I think the, uh, the, uh, why uh, the black females were more prevalent uh, uh, in the studies of rape during slavery is because of the fact that a lot of us are products of these rapes. Um, my great-great-grandfather was a product of that rape uh, when a uh, white slave master had raped my great-great-grandmother, uh, who was uh, captured uh, Igbo uh, from Nigeria. And, uh, you know, he was, a, he was a product of that rape. So, unfortunately, a lot of us uh, have that narrative of, of a great-great-grandparent you know, uh, who, you know, raped their great-great-grandmother so uh, that, you know, this is probably why it was more prevalent uh, for black women being raped than black men. But obviously, you know, they were raping all of us, uh, men, uh, the males and females. So uh, that's all I had on me in my life. 
Much obliged. Much obliged. Hmm. Gruesome subject matter, to be sure. I think Dropped also said, you know, she almost had to put the phone down. Totally understand. Some people said that about uh, medical apartheid and <clears throat> the half has never been told. Uh, it is, you know, not pleasant, not pleasant reading. Uh, but, you know, I prefer truth to uh, racists sanitizing this history uh, and saying wasn't that bad. And uh, that, hey, you know, that that's not even slavery, you know, as much as uh, Negroes enjoy raping. Uh, that that's not even so bad being on the plantation and, and all you have to do is go around and impregnate other slaves. Hey, that's, that's, Hey, life is great. You get paid to do it. You get some clothes to do it. That's great. You're not even being mistreated. I'd much rather have the truth and stomach it as best you can. It is definitely uh nauseating reading all the way through for sure. Uh, anything else folks need to get in? Can I be heard? Imhan DC, yes, sir. Yes, they were also raping the children. They were they were raping, and they are raping all of us. And they were raping more effectively, and in, in, in I would imagine much larger numbers. The entire population, um, but even now, they even record it and then put it in. I don't even mean to 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 laugh or anything, but they record it and they put it in these pornography videos and you can look at it for free and um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same rape or it's not the exact same, but they're still raping us and they're still all the women that are getting kidnapped and, and raped and even I know of people who have talked about being in these sexual relationships or not a, it's not a relationship I, I, it's a, in a sexual situation with these people and where it was a organization of these people and and I, I won't say what was going on but it's, it's very explicit it's some crazy stuff you know they're still doing this stuff they're, this is what they do and they have to leave our land uh, yeah Much obliged, Imhan DC. Any other comments folks wanted to make sure they get in? Yeah, I just came from um, a walk to the store while I was listening to the show. And um, they pulled over this black guy. And he had um, a minivan with tinted windows. And they just started hitting the windows with the flashlights. Busted his windows out because they were tinted, I guess, to see in his car. There was a baby in the back seat, so now they're calling an the ambulance. But didn't even ask a question; just hit the windows with the flashlights. Uh, I think that a lot of the um, homosexuality conversation should be premised in the face that, and uh, we could find in European culture before they came here. That's their culture. That's what they do. They, they They've been doing this for years. Um, in fact, in their um, theater, lesbianism, you know, a lot of the men would play the roles of the women, you know. So it's not no coincidence with us being in this culture for the last 200 years that a lot of that has been um, brought over to us. 
just, you know, not so much as just the trauma, just us being exposed to it, how it's promoted to us, you know, through their um, media apparatus and things of that nature. So I don't really tie that directly into um, the captivity, you know, of um, our ancestors. I tie it more into just um, the everyday propaganda we're exposed to as a, um, you know, a result of, you know, the captivity of our ancestors. Um, and there was something else I wanted to say, but that <laughs> what I just saw kind of just threw my thought off, but it was directly impacted on the show. I can't think of it right now, so if I think of it tomorrow, oh, Gus, I did go to the, I'm not able to call on Fridays, I did go to the Christmas party this year, and uh, worst mistake ever, oh, boy. I'll probably write it down so you can read it on a Friday show. I'll mute my line. Thank you. Let's write it down. We That has happened before. Well, we had victims of racism went to the Christmas party, and it was so bad that they had to write out a detailed, lengthy counter-racist report for me to share on the program, which I did. Uh, that has happened before. So, yes, write it up. Um, that's why I tell people, like, you have to have a code. Like, you have to take that thing seriously. Um, that's why even the part I got my invitation. I don't know what to call it because it's not until the end of January. So technically that's not a Christmas party, but you know, Hey, uh, you got to take all that stuff serious. Uh, that, that can go bad in so many different ways. Like, wow. Codification, super codify or die. That's how 909 said it. Codify or die. That's it. Especially around those office parties. Uh, anywho, wow. It has been a week, a year, really good riddance to 2019 for sure. Anywho, uh, we will be here, uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, live from Death Row, Thursday. Reading is more important than watching television. We will read on that, and then uh, maybe Friday we'll be here, and I can read Thomas's report from Orlando. Maybe not. We'll have to see. Uh, hopefully, things will go well, and we'll be here for the compensatory call-in uh, live from Florida this here Saturday. Hopefully worthy of your time and energy uh, this Sunday evening uh, for folks that are doing festivities and such over the next few days. Stay codified. I hope you use your time and energy in a constructive manner. If you don't have to be uh, on the plantation, uh, exchange views or doing things that are healthy, healing, replenishing, eating healthful foods, no chitlins, no chitlins. And minimize the sugar. This can be even for the people that don't do. Ch- I suspect most folks are not doing chitlins, uh, but lots of sweets. I know that is one because everybody is doing the pies and cakes and all that. That used to be mine. There was a reason I was tubby like, oh, man, you can get uh, cake for days uh, through this season. Like I would be real minimal uh, about all of that. No need to go around and eat all of those sweets uh, and confections and all of that let's be mindful about what we eat so we can be healthful and have lots of vitality so that all of us can be on the counter racist grind to get this problem solved that's it sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy let's keep our brain computer functioning well so that we can go about the business of we can go about the business of solving the problem uh, I think that was Solomon Northup was mentioned. I think a part of his uh, downfall tragedy uh, involved alcohol and whites. 
In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger or driver. Let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. In addition to being sober and buckled up, let's be off the phone. If you are going to be driving again, trying to do little things that we can to stay as safe as possible under extraordinarily dangerous conditions. With that creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.